Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about surviving the first year after adopting older kids. And we're going to have a panel of the real experts, which is, of course, the parents of children who who have adopted older kids and who have survived that first year. Uh, This is such an important topic. I love this show. I think you're going to, too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I think self-care is so important. Um, in the beginning, our children were very afraid to be out of, uh, without, not being able to see us. So even if I were in the bathroom, say, they were really scared. So I would sing or count in there so they would know where I was. Um, so we were very hesitant to reach out to resources. Um, but what happened was we hit a wall and needed some time for self-care. Our daughter only slept for 45 minutes at a time and would wake up screaming. Um, we identified a former foster parent that had had both Carl and Mary, uh, and they knew her. And we did take a weekend to ourselves. Um, and it was important for my husband and I to have dinner together, to actually sleep through a night. Um, it's, I don't know if I can say this, but it's very important to still have sex with your husband. You're not, he doesn't you go away and disappear. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit. And we have an online adoption education center that I want to tell you about. We have over 100 courses, one-hour audio downloadable courses that you can take with certificates of completion and uh, that you can submit if you need to. Uh, the resources are tremendous. They will help with this topic, which is transitioning home, surviving the first year, and adopting older kids. We've got lots of resources on that, as well as resources on just about, or courses on just about every topic imaginable that you could think of in adoption. Check it out on our website, creatingafamily.org. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our sponsors and our underwriter. First, our underwriter, which is Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. In addition to our underwriter, we also have gold sponsors whose generous support allows us to bring you this show as well as all of our resources. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Nightlight Christian Adoption. They have been the, they have been helping children connect with loving families for more than 50 years. They have offices from coast to coast providing international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation and adoption programs. We also have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption as well as embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. 
And we have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. And they place kids from Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also do kinship adoptions. I'll tell you about some more of our uh, wonderful gold sponsors at the end of the show. However, uh, I also want to mention that we have regular sponsors in, in addition to our gold sponsors. And when we ask when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from our Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the Find a Professional page of our site. You can search by location, services, number of years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And when using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about surviving the first year when adopting an older child. And we have the real experts on to talk about it, and that is parents, and in this case, moms, who have adopted older kids and who have survived the first the, the, uh, that first year. Uh, talk about real experts. Uh, been there, done that, folks. Today, we're going to be talking with Melissa Wagner. She is a mom of four boys, all adopted through foster care. We're talking with Abigail Betancourt. She is a mom to two, adopted at an older age from foster care. Uh, Jan, oh, Jan, I ask you, uh, Egozi, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a hard name for me to pronounce. I forgot to write the pronunciation down. Jan Egozi, she is the mom to a daughter adopted internationally. And Shelly McMullen, she is the mom to a daughter adopted internationally exactly one year ago today, and she is in the process of adopting another older child this summer. Welcome, all of you, to Creating a Family. I wanted to jump in and start with kind of giving uh, everyone, our listeners uh, and participants, a feel of the lay of the land here. So I'm going to ask each of you to tell me how old your child was, child or children were at adoption, and how old they are now. Uh, Shelley, we'll start with you. I've kind of already taken the punch there because I've already mentioned all that, uh, but I'll let you speak. So, uh, Shelley, how old was your child when you adopted him or her? And uh, it's a her, I know. Uh, and and uh, how old is she now? Um, we adopted Andrea. Uh, she was nine. Uh, when it, this is actually our one-year gotcha day anniversary. Um, so we got her one year ago, so she's 10 now. And then we're in the process of um, getting a son, and he will be here in August, and he is also nine. Excellent. And you adopted internationally. <laughs> Melissa, tell yes. us about how old your children were at adoption and how long have you had them? How, how long ago was that? Okay. Um, well, we started our journey a year ago um, with ages 10, 11, 13, and 16. Um, they are now 11, 12, 14, and 17. Okay, so you're actually in this a year. You you just adopted a year ago as well, right? Excellent. Okay. Well, I, that's good because I do think that it's important to. It's still fresh. You know, you haven't been. Uh, you haven't. You're not wizened. <laughs> it's still fresh how you survived. Abigail, uh, tell us how old your kids were uh, when uh, you when you adopted them. Sure. Um, we brought Mary and Carl home when Mary was seven and Carl was eight, and um, that was two years ago. Excellent. Okay, and you adopted from foster care. And Jan, how old was your daughter when uh, you adopted her, and how old is she now? 
Um, Adriana was 10 when we adopted her, and she's now 17. Oh, so you're the old-timer here. (laughs) (laughs) Notice I said old-timer, not old one, okay? I want credit for that. All right. Thank you. Uh, Anytime. Uh, All right. So we're going to be, in particular of this show, talking about surviving the first year. And I think uh, research has actually indicated we actually had – uh, two uh, leading researchers on in the last oh two months. One, uh, Dr. David Brodzinski, and the other one, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Barth, on. And both of them were talking about the importance of the first year. Um, you know, let's start with you, Jan, and, and, and ask about why do you think the first year is particularly stressful for, let's admit it, for the child certainly, but also for the parent. Um, well, I think because everyone's kind of getting used to each other and what the new rules are and um, you're getting used to your, to your child's behavior and they're getting used to yours. And I mean, in my case, Adriana was adopted from Columbia and so she had never seen a dishwasher, a microwave. Uh, She'd never ridden in a car. So lots of things were really new to her. And so that can be very stressful. So yeah. in our case, I mean, it, it was, you know, if we had adopted from foster care in the United States, I think, you know, there would have been, we would have cut out a lot of things that would have made it, it would have made it easier. You know, I don't know. Yes, yeah, some things, certainly the, the being exposed to modern conveniences and things like that. But I think it is still, I think it's still difficult when you have adopted uh, even from foster care. Abigail, since you adopted from foster care, why was the first year uh, stressful or more stressful than you had anticipated? <laughs> sure. Um, well, our kids came from a very traumatic background, and they'd been in care for quite some time. So they'd bounced around from place to place. So when they came to us, they were really learning what it was like to be in a permanent family, uh, in a functional family. And having a mom and dad triggered a lot of past fears because their previous experience was parents will hurt you physically or parents will abuse substances and drink alcohol. So their previous experience was triggered and a lot of those old fears such as being afraid to sleep at night or reliving trauma that maybe happened while they were in the shower, all those things sort of came up for them again. Um, and it was a lot for us to work through and correct their perception of what what a mom and dad do and, and what a loving family is. Uh, Melissa, did you experience, we hear uh, about the honeymoon period. I think most of us long for a honeymoon period. <laughs> did you experience uh, the, the honeymoon period where our, where our children's behavior is calmer and they seem to be trying trying hard and we're trying hard because I do think honeymoon periods go both ways parents and child um did you experience it and if so how long do you think it, how long do you, looking back how long do you think it lasted oh yeah we did experience it um it was short-lived in our house um about a month and then after that things kind of went to okay this is reality and um we began to actually really see how everybody behaved in a real way instead of you know putting on their best show and do you think that it was helpful to have had that time to adjust as a family, or, or in retrospect, was it harder because 
you uh, were lulled into not realizing uh, the reality of what parenting would be like? No, I think it was very helpful. It helped us to kind of get used to being in each other's spaces, um, going from, you know, a home with just my husband and I, because we have a grown son, but we didn't have any in the home. Um, that time to get used to them being in our space and us being in theirs, um, because they weren't used to having a lot of um, adult figures in their in their life um, on a daily basis. So it was extremely helpful. Um, we went in pretty much realistic as to what this was going to look like, so we weren't surprised when it ended at all. Well, I'm glad to know that uh, that you were given uh, support, a, a realistic idea of what to expect, expect because, quite frankly, that's that's a real problem that we in the adoption world are currently needing to work hard on, and that is to help parents have a realistic idea because one of the hardest things is unmet expectations, hardest things to deal with is uh, unmet expectations. Shelley, what were, uh, to remind our audience, you've been home a year with a nine-year-old adopted internationally. Um, what was, What were your first months home like with your daughter? Um, we also had a honeymoon period. Um, we had a, kind of an interesting situation. The um, adoption process in um, Moldova, where she's from, required a two-month visitation um, in country prior to the adoption. So we were kind of on her turf uh, when we first met her, and we were told by the director of the orphanage, oh, she has these meltdowns, and, and she was raised in an orphanage her whole life. And, and you know, just from from being raised without parents. And, and we, didn't, we saw them at the orphanage. We never saw them with us um, until about a month after we got her home. And then um, she started just the strangest things would just trigger her um, into complete meltdowns. So that was hard when you have no idea what to do. Um, that that was probably the, more, the the hardest part for us to get used to is trying to figure out how to stop these and what the triggers are. Yeah, and understanding what their what their triggers are. Um, did any of you face food issues with your child? We've got a, <laughs> we received a comment. Um, okay, somebody did because I heard the laugh. All right, that person, please speak. We're all on the phone, so it's going to be hard to know. Yeah, let's, let's talk food issues. Yeah, this is Abigail. Um, our children did have food issues. Uh, a lot of times in their biological home, their biological mother was unwell and wouldn't get out of bed for months, and the, the littlest children would be home and have to sort of fend for themselves. So um, once they were in a home with a mom and dad again, they thought they'd be forced to eat bacos. Uh, for lunch. So they they did have a lot of food that they kept in their rooms or hidden in places in case of emergency. Um, our son had some bananas that he kept in his pillowcase. And as you know, they don't last long in a pillowcase. Um, so we did have to work hard to replace some of that with non-perishable food items that they could keep in their rooms or on their person to feel safe. But um, the other thing that they had a problem with, Mary would not eat if anyone was watching her. So we would sit down as a family, um, and then once we cleared the table and left, then she would eat. And uh, Carl, he would be upset at other people providing his food. 
so he would melt down at the table if he had, you know, five um, dinner rolls on his plate and someone took the last one to get their one dinner roll. He would cry, take his plate of food and just throw it and then cry that there was no food left because all of it was in my hair or on the wall. Um, And we had to really practice. We wrote a little story about what dinner time would look like, what we were going to eat every day. We wrote it down for him. We explained that, you know, he was supposed to eat his food and not throw it and that if he needed more, we would certainly get more. Um, But it was fear that he was experiencing. And it took a long time for him to calm down and eat his dinner around other people without being afraid that we were going to take it from his plate and eat all of it without leaving him anything. You mentioned I wanted to talk about some solutions. I think food issues are oh. are very common at the very beginning, and I very for a number of reasons. Yeah, but the the primary one being that uh, often there were food insecurities. That's the fancy word for saying that kids not knowing when their next next meal would be coming or whether there would be enough. So hoarding. Um, you just described some others. Uh, one of the things you mentioned about how you dealt with hoarding was, uh, let's say a child is going to, is wanting to keep food, bananas or otherwise, in their room <laughs> or their yeah. pillowcase or their closet or in their pockets. Um, some suggestions on, as a parent, what you can do, because you, you don't want bugs, you don't want to attract uh, the bugs or, or varmints, uh, you also don't necessarily want them smelling like bananas, you know, for the next day when the bananas get in the air. <laughs> So suggestions on on what you did that worked. Sure. Um, Well, the first thing that we did was just meet the need. If they're afraid that they're not going to get enough food, then we need to provide enough food. So we always had a bowl of fruit available, but their food that they could keep on on their person or in their room, they had pockets full of granola bars or anything that was non-perishable that we felt was healthy, fruit snacks made of real fruit, et cetera, that they could always have. They could have as many as they want in their rooms as long as the packages were sealed and they got rid of the wrappers once it was eaten. And we just kept providing food and providing food until they were no longer afraid. Does anybody else had uh, hoarding issues or other food issues who could tell us how they handled them? Um, Uh, This is Shelley. Okay, go ahead, oh. <laughs> um, We had more um, of, it, it was a big cultural change, uh, obviously from Eastern Europe where food is very bland. Um, getting our daughter to try new food, which she was, she just wouldn't try anything. And But the things that she liked, she would just gorge herself until she was ill. And she, I've never seen a, a child eat a pound of cherries you know, in, in one sitting, and then she'd have a terrible stomachache, of course. Um, so we really had to um, portion, kind of portion food out um, for her so she wouldn't get sick and, you know, do a lot of making food uh, together to try new things. She was more apt to, to try something new if she helped make it because she knew exactly what was in it. Uh, and that was huge for us, was having her kind of build the recipe. Okay, that makes good sense. So you had the opposite problem where your child was uh, not able to, to stop eating, mm-hmm. and I certainly heard, and one of the questions we have received talks about children who are gaining weight rapidly. 
uh, and uh, and trying to, and the parents' concern that there is an unhealthy relationship with food, but not knowing how to, uh, what to do to to help the child. Has anyone, uh, and this is awkward because I've got all four of you and I am directing, but I don't know your individual stories. Has anybody had experience with uh, knowing what to do with a, a child that is uh, is is not able to control the quantity of what they are eating? Um, right. Well, I would I would say that we can we you know we we did have to portion out food. We'd say here's your serving of cherries today. Here's your serving of juice. Um, we had to buy things and smaller portions you couldn't just get the big bottle of juice you had to get the little juice boxes and put them in the fridge for however many she got um she, weight gain is not really an issue she's the most active child so we haven't really experienced issues with that other than terrible stomach aches from overeating the things that 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 she loves um but it was definitely it's definitely a concern as she gets older and goes into puberty <laughs> And this came from Jocelyn, uh, who uh, has had experience with that. She said, from the beginning, we have provided him with a shelf in the refrigerator and a shelf in the pantry for his food. It eases his anxiety. It limits gorging and purging and minimizes food hiding. We still find perishable food stashed in his room four years later, even though the pantry and the fridge are stuffed. Uh, we anticipate that our son will have a lifelong struggle with food, uh, stemming from the food scarcity in early childhood. Uh, and I think that uh, food issues early in childhood um, are 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 difficult. I think for our kids to uh, to overcome, uh, but can be. Um, I certainly think that um, doing the, the suggestions are meet their need. Um, where they're having them, and then trying to find uh, acceptable food that they can carry with them and have control over. Um, Here is a question we have from Amy. She says, what have you said or done to empower your child or children that they have the power over their own story and who and when they choose to share it with? Jan, can you talk some about... Uh, the issue of how much to share and how to empower our children to know that it's their choice uh, to know how and what to share. Um, Well, Adriana also has a very traumatic history. She was um, with her biological family until she was somewhere between five and seven and then in foster care until she was 10. And I mean, all places were a horrible nightmare for her, unfortunately. So, um, she has many, many traumas, and um, you know, since she was ten years old when we adopted her, you know, we've always been very open with her about it. Um, and because of that, it is kind of hard for her to know maybe like how open should I be with other people about my story. And you know, we've tried to explain that, you know, kids and even teenagers, you know, if you tell them some of the things that have happened to you, may not know what to do with that information. And even some adults don't know what to do with it. And it's probably better not to share, you know, those kinds of things. And so she she has, I think she's, you know, she's made some mistakes and shared some things that she shouldn't have. Um, but I think she's learned from those mistakes and learned 
you know, maybe it's not okay to share with, you know, with somebody in one of her classes about some things that have happened. And um, just from the response that she's gotten from, you know, the other kids. So I think it's a, it's a trial and error. I think you can talk to your blue in the face and say, don't share. And, you know, they're, they're, they're going to, and, you know, she's 17. And so, um, you know, she, some of that she's going to have to figure out for herself. Um, Yeah, have you ever utilized? Have you ever utilized the uh, book, uh, the uh, Power Up book? It's for teens, or it's actually, I think, works well for tweens and teens as well. Um, That's another great resource that really helps kids think through how and what and when to share information. Uh, we link to that in our, uh, on, the cre- on Creating a Family. You can go to our adoption landing page, which is off the adoption tab on the, any page. And uh, we have suggested books, and we have a, uh, broken out by age uh, and type of adoption. And, and I really do recommend that resource uh, as a, a particularly useful one. One of the we've got a, a, a question that I thought was so good and about uh, how to integrate the new child so that they feel caught up on family stories and inside jokes and things like that. Melissa, um, you know the children come into a family that is existing, and uh, well, you have an older son, but he was not in the house. But still, there were probably stories and jokes and things like that. Um, was it something that you consciously thought about having to integrate uh, your new children, your new sons, into the um, into the family and into the family culture? Absolutely. Um, we, on purpose, would share stories and spend a lot of time talking. I can remember our first um, couple of months with the boys at the house. We would go geocaching, and it was a time where all of us would be in the car at the same time, spending time together. And while we were driving around looking for these things, we would spend time talking, you know, just about the family, um, things that had happened. And also, before we got the boys, um, talked to our son as well. So, he, you know, he knew what they were coming and um, made them feel like they knew each other already. So they were really excited, you know, once they got to start meeting family. And we've been very blessed that our family has just taken them in as um, their own. They were never um, talked about like they were anything other than, you know, my grandson, my brother, my uh, nephew, and um, just, you know, had a lot of time talking and laughing about different things. Abigail, did you also have specific things that you did to integrate the child and catch them up to what it's like to be in your family? Um, Yeah, we made a book for our kids. Uh, We did a welcome book, and this was when we started doing visits with them, and it had the story of how my husband and I met and um, pictures of his two children and information about them, the town that we lived in. Um, And then we we started to tell family stories all the time, the story of, you know, the time that my stepdaughter did this or my stepson did this. And then we also started to tell stories about um, Carl and Mary so they could be part of these family stories. And we took a bunch of pictures and sent them to Shutterfly and made some new books. And now Carl and Mary can pick up the book and they can tell 
stories about other family members who maybe live far away, um, pictures of them, stories about them, and also stories of their previous foster families. Um, so it's all sort of integrated together. But, yeah, we, we started that right away just so that they would sort of feel comfortable with where they were going and the kind of family they were getting into. Yeah, because we all come from cultures. Um, I need to remind you that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. And today we're talking about surviving the first year when adopting an older child. By the way, Clout now ranks us as the number one online influencer worldwide in the area of adoption. There are three ways, and we would love to have you connect with us on our social media. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group. You can like our Facebook page, or you can connect with me personally. I go by dawn.davenport1. The Facebook page is, of course, Creating a Family, and the Facebook group is Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. The easiest way to find those is to just type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. You can like the page and join the group. It is a closed group, so you have to request to join. We also hang out on Twitter and Pinterest, and we go by at Creating a Family over there, so you can find us easily. We have a uh, comment and question from Laura. She says, I'm currently mom to four kids, adopted at ages 8 through 14. They, they are now 19 through 26. We are in the process of adopting number five. What little advice and support we were given when adopting our older kids from Kazakhstan did little to prepare us for the realities of adopting older kids with extended life stories of neglect and abuse. We also now know that there were many things we should have done differently in the first years of our kids that our kids were with us. I believe these would have lessened the severity of mental health issues our kids faced and are facing as older teens and young adults. Thank you for focusing on this very important topic. In hindsight, please ask your panelists what they would have done differently to prepare themselves for parenting an older child. What would they have done differently during the first weeks and months home with their child or children adopted at an older age? That is such a good question. I'm going to kind of go down the list of people and ask that question. Jan, I'm going to start with you since you, you've been, you're the furthest out. That's also, I'm picking on you because that gives everybody else time to think about sure. what their answer is going to be. Um, so what would you have done uh, differently to prepare in advance, and what would you have done differently the first weeks and months home? Um, I had started researching already, um, you know, what to do and, and how to, you know, I read a lot of Dan Hughes books and, um, you know, I started, you know, doing a lot of research online. Um, but I, I wish I had started that process even earlier. I don't think I was completely, I wasn't completely prepared. Um, the two things I would definitely change, one, and it may not be a very popular answer, and even though she was 10, but I would have let her sleep in our room. Um, that was something we were told, like, don't do that, and I wish we had done that. Um, I think it would have made a huge difference as far as her attaching to us sooner. Um, and when, because she came from Colombia, she didn't speak English, and so she was, we, and we made her repeat the fourth grade, and there was a lot of homework, and I would have said, we're not doing any homework, we're just going to focus on attaching to our child, and if she has to repeat the fourth grade for a third time, it's not a big deal. Um, I wish we had done that because I think focusing on our relationship with her 
instead of getting homework done and, you know, the other things, I think that was a mistake. So those are those are two big things okay. that I would definitely change. Great words of advice. All right, Abigail, what about you? Um, I think I wish that I had read The Connected Child uh, before <laughs> bringing our kids home. I think a lot of the difficulties they had in the beginning, they were struggling with falling in love with us and and being afraid of that. And had I recognized some of the fear, maybe I would have cut myself a little bit of slack because there's sort of a period where you wonder, what am I doing wrong? This child keeps melting down. Why isn't she happy? Um, And in reality, you know, a lot of our daughter's meltdowns were, it was her falling in love with us and being very afraid to feel that love. And I would have just taken the time to let her feel the way she felt and um, and just been more okay with that. All right. And what and that's what you would have done the that so that so you've answered both of what you would have done ahead of time was read the connected child and the other one mm-hmm. uh was what you would have done and that would have helped you with the first weeks and understanding what your daughter was going through. All right, right. Melissa, what would you have done different differently both to prepare and then on the first weeks uh and months home? Um to prepare, I I think I would have organized my resources a lot um a lot better instead of um, second-guessing what they needed when they, you know, once they were in the home. But just um, better organization of, you know, therapists and, what you know, what they might need, anticipating that just a little bit better. Um, I, you know, I wish instead of just going with therapists that were recommended um, by the foster system that we could have, I would have taken a little bit more, um, control of it and made sure that those therapists were actually matched up with their kids' personality types because because they didn't, they didn't make much progress. And we're just now getting to a place where um, we're recognizing that and actually getting people who they can feel comfortable talking to instead of just going in and talking about basketball. Um, and I, looking back, I think... Um, we were probably a little bit hard on ourselves with the with the expectations that we had, and um, when things went wrong, you know, well, okay, what what did we do wrong? And the reality is, we didn't do anything wrong. We've loved the kids beautifully. It's just part of the process. So just don't be so hard on ourselves. Um, and if I had taken off a little bit of time from work initially, it would have given me a lot of. Um, relief because going from zero to four is uh, is a very large um, change in just your lifestyle and the exhaustion was so much a part of you know my emotional um, makeup at the time and I I really wish that I had recognized that and taken some time off work and just given myself a little bit of a break. Okay, Shelley, since you're right in the process of doing it again, um, <laughs> what are you doing different this time to better prepare yourself, and what would you have done different the first couple of weeks and months home with your daughter? Um, I would echo both uh, reading The Connected Child and um, having resources. I kind of um, blew off the, the idea of therapy. Um, I, I had never been through it, didn't really... I just didn't think it was it was something we would really needed as part of our home study. We had to identify someone, and we found a woman, talked to her. She had experience, but we didn't didn't really connect with her. Um, 
then when we got our daughter home and she would have these meltdowns and I didn't understand and she wouldn't listen to me and um, I felt like she was doing it to me on purpose and um, didn't really understand where it was coming from that she's, she's not purposely doing this, you know, and um, that I needed to work more on connecting with her than just correcting her all the time. That's something they talked about, all the connections before you can correct um, yeah. and not worrying about what other people think, you know, when you take your child out and she's not listening and she's the loudest and, and you know what, it's going to be that way for a little while because she doesn't, you know, understand what it is to be a child in a family with parents yet. So I think, I think the expectations and having the, our, our therapist is wonderful. Um, having, having those resources and knowing that you are connected with them as well was, is huge and I'm glad we already have those for the second round. Excellent. One of the t- topics that we harp on a lot, a lot here at Creating a Family is the idea of self-care and uh, t- taking care of yourself, which is something that when you are struggling with a major life change, which is any adoption, but especially adoption uh, of adopting an older child, it's really hard to focus, to, to, to try to take time for yourself. Um, and then it's compounded by the fact that uh, much of what you read tells you that we need to be focusing on attachment parenting, which means we can't leave our children, et cetera, et cetera. So I would like to open up the discussion to talk some about self-care uh, and uh, whether uh, you made time for it, uh, and whether you wish you had, and how you found the time for it, uh, if, you, if you did or, or if, you did, if you were able to. Melissa, let's start with you this time. Okay. Yeah, the the uh, self-care can definitely be a challenge and um for us because the um kids had experienced some had some really bad experiences when um they were in respite during foster care. We were very hesitant to just send them off somewhere to get our rest. So, um we actually didn't do that enough um as a result of that. But what what we have done is um, take time, even if it's an hour of giving each other a break where we can just go to our room, have some quiet time, soak in the tub if we need to. Um, that's been very helpful. And also making sure that, that we as a husband and wife stay connected. That was a huge thing and still is. So we take time to write each other notes on the mirror and um, we've even had a candlelight dinner in our bedroom before just so we could have a little bit of uh, alone time. And it's important no matter what it takes. Sometimes you have to think outside of the box when you don't have anywhere to send four kids, you know. But there's always a way, and that's how we've kind of found our, our way to do that. Abigail, what about you and the ideas of self-care? Okay. I think self-care is so important. Um, in the beginning, our children were very afraid to be out of uh, without not being able to see us. So even if I were in the bathroom, say, they were really scared. So I would sing or count in there so they would know where I was. Um, so we were very hesitant to reach out to resources 
Um, but what happened was we hit a wall and needed some time for self-care. Our daughter only slept for 45 minutes at a time and would wake up screaming. Um, we identified a former foster parent that had had both Carl and Mary, uh, and they knew her. And we did take a weekend to ourselves. Um, and it was important for my husband and I to have dinner together, to actually sleep through a night um, it's, I don't know if I can say this, but it's very important to still have sex with your husband. You're not, he doesn't you go away and disappear. And <laughs> Neither do yeah. you. Um, yeah, and if and you're not doing yeah. <laughs> any of those things for yourself, um, then it's really hard to give back to your kids because while you're pouring love into them, they might be having meltdowns, uh, like I think Shelley was saying, and you know that it's hard for them to give it back. So you need to have that with your spouse or your significant other, whoever. Um, we also did, we signed our kids up for vacation Bible school, and it was a couple of hours uh, in the evening, one week, and they had activities with other kids, and it was the first time we'd left them anywhere, but uh, we were home with them, you know, all summer. So when they went for these two hours, my husband and I could have dinner together, just a little time together, and one of the days we just stayed in the parking lot and slept in the car. Totally worth it <laughs> for two hours. Um <laughs> But, yeah, you, you know, you have to meet your own basic needs before you can meet the needs of your child. Very important. Yeah, I totally agree. Shelley, what about you? Um, it it was very important for me as well. Um, and I, I still tried to um, – working out has always been one of my – my stress reducers, and we had my poor husband. We had a, a couple meltdowns that just happened to happen while I was at the gym. Um, but it was it, it was still important for each of us to have that time outside. And I think also, um, besides relationships with with your husband, also relationships uh, with your friends. Uh, you can kind of you get so busy and you're so into parenting this child that some of your your relationships with your close friends tend to, you know, you don't have time for them. And I think it's it's important to keep those as well because I, I find spending time with my best friends really relaxing and um, you just have to make more of an effort to plan them. Um, but that has helped with sanity as well. So it sounds like giving each other time off uh, is is important, and I also heard mm-hmm. finding trusted others uh, to leave your child with um, that you would feel comfortable, and that it won't set your child back or trigger your child uh, to, into to going into uh, a panic. Uh, Jan, do you have anything to add on the idea of self care? No, but I I totally agree with with all of the ladies. I totally agree. Um, one of the things that I, I walk my dog a couple of times a day and I use that time. Um, I'm gone for 15 or 20 minutes um, and I use that time to talk to my friends on the phone. And that's, you know, that's a, a great way. It's a, it's a little escape, but it's it's nice. You are listening to Creating a Family Talk About Adoption and Infertility. Today we're talking about with we're talking with a panel of experienced moms who have adopted older children about the topic of getting through that important first year. We primarily keep in touch with everyone through our weekly e-newsletter. We send out a newsletter every week telling you about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic, which allows you to send your questions in in advance. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page, top right corner of creatingafamily.com. 
www.ncpa.org. Let's talk about school. Uh, somebody has already mentioned it. Jan was talking about the the issue of of homework and and expectations and, and focusing on relationships. But school presents a lot of issues uh, for families adopting older kids for just a host of reasons. Not the least of which is that uh, your child very well may not be caught up uh, academically with others of their their age group. We have a question from Laura asking about what are the top three things parents adopting an older child should have on their radar screen regarding educational issues and concerns. So let's let's dive into the issue of adopting. Um, Mary, your children were school. Uh, I'm sorry, not Mary. Melissa, your children were uh, all school aged uh, when you adopted them. What? Let's let's just talk about what's been the biggest challenge for you as a family uh, in trying to navigate and advocate for your kids in the school system. I'm assuming you have them in school. Oh, absolutely, and it it has been a huge challenge. Um, literally. Two days after um, being coming to our home, they were straight into school. It, um, the year had just started, and everybody ha- is behind um, at least about two years academically, and a lot of um, different needs, especially in the areas of reading and math. And so for us, it has been a journey of fighting for them and making sure everybody is getting the IEPs they need and it's um, challenging with the the especially middle school and high school years of getting people to work with you and talk to you so you're constantly having to be on the phone getting those counselors um, to listen because um, they have so many so many different kids in their system um, they don't always have time and so we've had to make sure testing is getting done. Um, the homework is overwhelming for the younger kids. It's been challenging. And there's been times that I've had to talk to their teachers and say this is too much um, and get them some help that way. And um, having tutors um, get involved and just giving them some one-on-one time is really helpful. And then being realistic, like don't expect them to come home with A's and B's. It's not going to to happen if they have that kind of a delay and they're trying to get used to not just a new home but new school and new friends. So I think a lot of times uh, you just have to um, expect that they do as much as they can, do their best, but don't have an expectation that they're going to come home with A's and B's. Okay, that was all great advice. Uh, Shelley, would you add anything to that uh, for uh, dealing with school and learning issues? Um, I would. Uh, we're really lucky. Um, we have a great school, um, public school, that um, is a magnet school for immigrants and refugees. So our daughter was put in a classroom with a bunch of children that didn't speak English um, from all over the world. So we were lucky. Uh, that they were prepared a little bit for uh, delayed learning and um, and language barriers. But the big problem that we had um, was more uh, relationships with other children because she had been raised in an orphanage. She never really had friendships. The kids were just there, and they they 
you know, beat each other up and push each other around. And, and she was one of the little, littler kids. So she just, she was really tough and responds with fists. Um, just, it's her immediate, she just goes to violence immediately. So obviously in a school situation, uh, we had, we had a lot of, a lot of problems with that. Um, so we had a lot of conversations with the teachers we'd had, um, we had to have uh, emails. Um, we had the police were called one day because she had had a meltdown the night before, and my husband had picked her up because she was melting down and bonking her head on the wall. And he picked her up and he scratched her. And of course, she told one of the teachers that her dad had scratched her. And then, you know, we get the call. You know, oh, or, you know, is your husband abusing your daughter? Um, so we've, we've had to have a lot of conversations with teachers and every time something happens, I send an email. Um, they've been, they've been wonderful, but sometimes we've had to have conversations with the um, administrative staff about that normal punishment isn't going to work with her. If you yell at her, if you belittle her or she's, when she gets scared, she just becomes more violent because she's like a cornered animal and you can't punish her the same way that, other children can. So we we've um, we were lucky that that people would listen, but we had to have a lot of conversations. And you know, instead of detention, she should go to the counselor um, and things like that. Yeah, working with schools on uh, understanding that children who've experienced trauma uh, have are going to respond differently and need a different approach. And you know, honestly, I've heard it's all over the board between schools being extremely receptive to schools not being receptive at all. And uh, and I don't know that there's any way you can, other than perhaps being uh, proactive and talking with the schools ahead of time, uh, is, I think, is, is, is as helpful as you can be. But then, quite frankly, sometimes they think that you as a parent, or because you're just brand new at this, um, are overreacting. So, uh, but being proactive, I think, usually helps. Abigail, thoughts on education and ways to make it a smoother process for children, especially that first year? Well, I, I'm going to start by saying I am an elementary school teacher. <laughs> um, and I honestly, I think the first year home is really about attachment and addressing that trauma and giving your children that felt safety. So our kids, you know, we our son was on an IEP. Um, he also tends to go to violence first. That's a survival skill he learned at a young age. Um, but the biggest problem for our kids was separation anxiety. It was leaving us in the morning. So we were able to get um, through a 504 plan for our daughter and our son's IEP door-to-door transportation. So a little bus would pull up, and we'd carry our kids, and they were, you know, grabbing onto us and grabbing our hair and screaming and kicking and trying to stay with us, and we'd get them onto the bus, and once they were on, they would go to school and be relatively okay, Um, but getting them there was difficult. And we also sent them to school with transitional objects. And what I mean by that is we would give them pictures of us to keep in their backpack, and they had it Um, Their teachers would allow them at any time to go and look at these things um, so they could see a picture of us and feel like we were still sort of with them. And also, um, for our son especially, we gave them the clothes that we had worn the day before, so like our stinky shirt um, that smells a lot like mom, and it sounds crazy. But if he could go to his locker and, and hold that shirt and smell it 
and feel like I was somehow close by, it would help his stress and it would also um, decrease the level of violence that he might exhibit if he were feeling scared or cornered. Um, working with teachers is very important, emailing and getting the team on board. Homework, and I will tell you as a teacher, it is not important. And I, when they came home, we were doing therapeutic activities. We were bonding. We did some homework, but if they weren't making huge gains in that first year and doing all of their homework, I didn't care about it. And I had it put into the IEP and the 504 plan that they weren't expected to have the same level of homework completion as other kids because they were very far behind academically, but they were also very far behind emotionally. And that's the basis of everything in their lives, the relationships they have with others. And it was just, it's more important. And I'll tell you that as a teacher, just is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think that, uh, as, as you well said, the emotions are um, emotional. Uh, being emotional development is, is is more important than academic development. Anything, Jan, that you'd like to add to uh, the ideas uh, that's been shared so far on surviving educationally? Um, the, I when we got to middle school, I met with all of the teachers before you know the year would start. I met with all of the teachers that she would have contact with at one time and educate them about trauma, how it affects the brain, and all of that, give them a little bit of her story to, to kind of pull them in and get them interested and feel some empathy for her. And then they were, I mean, they were amazing. So on board, how can I help? What can I do? Which was wonderful. And then really formed a bond and an attachment to Adriana, which was great and great for her because this was really the first time, um, and I would say by middle school, that she, you know, really felt, you know, anything for an adult besides us. So that was, you know, that was a great thing. And High school, you know, has been not as receptive as middle school, but there still are some really good teachers and some of the administrators have been great as well. Jan, did you have issues associated with your daughter viewing you as the parent figure? Oftentimes, oh people who have come to us from an older age have had to be had to fend for themselves, or either in foster care or in abusive or neglectful homes, or or in international and orphanages. So, uh, let's talk a little about how you establish your role as the parent. Yes, and and. Um, I'm still doing that. <laughs> um, she she has had a very difficult time seeing me as in charge of her. She doesn't. She, you know, thinks kind of everybody's on an equal footing because nobody was really in charge of her before, and that's been really hard for both of us. And it's still something that I have to constantly remind her. We have a very close and intimate relationship, which I cherish and I treasure. But And it's, sometimes it's hard for her to remember where that boundary is. While we are very close, I'm not your friend, and we're not equal. And it's still, you know, so sometimes she crosses a line, and I'll say, you know, that that's not okay that you said that or you did that. Um, and when, when, we, when we moved to Kansas and we bought our house, she's like, well, where's my master bedroom? Where's my master bathroom? Um, and it, it's hard for her still to 
you know, like, so if any, so if, you know, if we get something, well, where's my new computer? Where, you know, and it's still hard for her. It's, it's much better now. We're seven years in, but it, it has been a struggle. It definitely has. Um, Abigail, have, did you also experience some of this, uh, the issues of who's in charge? Yeah. Um, our kids were so used to surviving on their own and looking out for themselves and meeting their own needs, feeding themselves and um, just taking care of everything that they needed on their own. So coming to us, it was a little difficult. Um, one of the things we did, and this is in a Gregory Keck book somewhere, I think, Adopting the Hurt Child, was we made a chart and we worked on it together as a family. And the chart was what mommy does, what daddy does, what the kids do, and we put a list of responsibilities. Who's responsible for food? Who's responsible to make sure you, you get sleep at night? Um, and we reviewed it with their therapist, and we hung it up in the dining room, and we referred to it all the time. So if, for instance, Carl thought it was time for him to put Mary to bed, um, we would say, well, let's check the chart. Who, who has the bedtime routine? Oh, that's mom's duty. You know, um, and, and we were silly and we were playful about it, but we kind of stuck to our guns, and they needed something concrete to refer to because they really had no idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. I love Greg Keck. He was, uh, um, I'll, uh, someplace I'll put, we've done a number of uh, shows with him as our guest. Unfortunately, he is no longer with us, but boy, I sure loved his advice. Um, all right, uh, Shelley, thoughts on establishing yourself as the, as the mom and helping your daughter see you as the mom? We're we're still working on that one. <laughs> um, I I would <laughs> that's still work in um, progress I, here. It's a work in progress. It's 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 getting much better. Um, but uh, she is definitely the child that says, um, you know, well, if I go to bed, you have to go to bed, or you're not my boss, or, um, and you know, technically. Um, I am her boss. So, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Excuse me, actually I am. <laughs> Technically I am. Um, she picked up the, that really cute thing um, a couple months ago. Um, so it, it has been difficult to to um, help her, you know, discern the difference that, you know, we, my husband and I are the adults here and, and you're a child and the reason you can't, you do things as, as you're a child, and once you prove your responsibility of doing these things, you know you have more choices. And so that's something that we really tried to emphasize with her. And, and it's it's slowly working, but you know, prove you can handle this little thing, whether it's just taking your dishes from the table to the sink, and then you can stay up ten minutes later, or you can um, go to the schoolyard across the street by yourself, or you know just to give her a little more independence by showing responsibility. Um, we're hoping that that kind of proves where you get your responsibility from, but it is difficult for a, a child that kind of was always her own boss to suddenly have two bosses <laughs> plus yeah. teachers, you know, a lot of bosses. Yeah. Yeah, one of mine one time, you know, that, that you're not the boss of me, I think, you know, that was certainly. And then when I uh, said, well, you know, actually I am, and and, uh, and and then she goes, well, I'm not inviting you to my birthday party. And I said, well, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm going to be there. Well. <laughs> 
if I'm not there, there's no party. So, <laughs> well, darn, that's not how I wanted this to work out. Uh, so, the uh, uh, Melissa, uh, the time we have left, I want to shift and talk a little about uh, our children's loyalty towards their biological families. Now, sometimes when we adopt children, uh, uh, particularly if they're adopted internationally, they, they may not have any memory of their, uh, even from foster care at times, they may not have memory of their biological family. But quite often they do. And our kids have uh, love for, uh, oftentimes, and, and, and confusion surrounding um, their, their birth families. Um, so, Melissa, your kids, particularly, I mean, you had a 16-year-old, uh, and 13 and 11, well, all of yours, uh, from 10 to 16, uh, had knowledge of uh, and uh, relationships with, most likely, their birth family. Um, how have you helped them uh, deal with mixed loyalties uh, and feelings of, of and feelings of abandonment? Um, it is definitely challenging, and absolutely there's, a loyalty there. In our case, there are actual court orders um, prohibiting um, any kind of contact for their safety. And so there's, they're torn. You know, they love us, they love them, and there's this battle inside of, you know, where do I, where should I be, who should I love? And really, it just comes down to just reassuring them, you know what, this, this is, this is the way this is. It doesn't change that they're your that they're your parents. Of course, they're still your parents. They're your parents. We're your parents. We're we're taking care of you now. Um, it's okay to love all of us. It's okay um, to have a care for all of us. And they shouldn't feel like they shouldn't be made to feel like they have to choose. And by voicing that they don't have to choose that, and as far as their love goes. Um, gives them a sense of um, comfort there where they um, don't have to have as big of a battle. And it just is a long process of developing trust with them, um, helping them to understand that um, what makes us your parents right now, you know, is that you can count on us to make sure you're taken care of. You don't have to do this by yourself. Um those things that they hadn't experienced before. But the big thing, I think, is just making sure that they hear you say that it's okay to love them. It's okay to feel that way. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that makes excellent sense. And to actually voice it, not just assuming that because you've never said anything against their birth parents that they will automatically think and realize that, in fact, they, they have that right, but to voice it and do, you know, actually give them permission. Um, Abigail and your children, uh, do they have an ongoing relationship with birth family, and how have you helped them deal with a sense of loyalty and love towards their birth families? Yeah. Um, our kids have a lot of mixed feelings around their birth family, which is perfectly normal. Um, they have gone through trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So each child's made a trauma narrative about things that have happened to them. And we've always been very honest about exactly why they're in foster care. Um, so we do have pictures of their biological parents around the home, and we do tell good stories 
um, of memories they've had or things that older siblings have told us about their bio parents. Um, but we also acknowledge the bad, you know, the things that have happened to them that were not okay, that were poor parenting choices and scary for kids. So, um, I mean, they they have a love for their first family as well as for us. Uh, we do have an open adoption agreement. However, the biological parents of our children have chosen um, not to have contact, and they, they wish not to be contacted at this time. So we do uh, save everything in sort of a memory box for them in case we ever have contact again. Um, they get school pictures and letters that they might send to their biological family and all of their feelings about their first family, that's all okay. And I, I do hope that someday uh, that the, the biological mother and father of our children have contact with them, but right now we're respecting their choice not to. What about birth siblings um, maintaining uh, relationships or not maintaining relationships or in, in, in ch- help, helping children cope with the presence or absence of siblings because sometimes siblings mean more to our children than uh, birth parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, well, that was what you asked, Gail. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I started answering. Um, our children come from a sibling group of seven. Uh, so they do have a younger sister that they've only met a handful of times, and she's been adopted by another family. Um, but they have older siblings that we are in contact with. We did foster two of their older brothers. Um, one of them, you know, he's 18 now and he's on his own, but we consider him our son. Um, and we have contact with him often. And um, he's been good for them, but sometimes they do trigger some of those trauma memories. Um, We do keep in contact. We send updates and photos to one of their older sisters. Um, Their oldest sister does not wish to have contact with them or with us at this time, and that's okay, but we still have something set aside in case uh, in case she ever wants contact or wants to see their lacrosse pictures from when they were eight years old. Um, so the the kind of relationship just depends on what the siblings are are up for and what they would like to have. Yeah, and and I think that um, Melissa's advice of voicing, actually saying out loud, you have permission to love. Your siblings, you have permission to love your uh, your parents. There's room in your heart for loving us and them, and it's okay. And of course, you and it's okay, as you point out, Abigail, to have mixed emotions too, because not all experiences, obviously, were good. Well, we have come to the end of our time together. I want to thank our uh, guests very much for being here uh, and talking about the ever so important topic of, of 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 not just surviving but thriving through the first year home with older adopted kids. I also want to take a moment to uh, remind you that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our gold sponsors. I mentioned a few at the beginning. We have a few more. We have Adoption Connection. They are a California-based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S. They are a national pioneer in open adoption and are respected for ethical practices, compassion, and openness to all members of the adoption triad. We have Holt International, founded in 1956. They want every child to have a loving and secure home, and they lead the global community in finding families for children who need them and for providing high-quality pre- and post-adoption support. We have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have a private infant 
private infant program, an international program, and an adoption through foster care program. I know that our audience may at some point want to reach out to our guest today to talk with them uh, about their experience. So I'm going to ask each of you uh, if you have a website. If not, if you are open to having people contact you via uh, Facebook or, or some type of online media. Melissa, let me start with you. Um, do you have a blog? If, if you want to give us the URL to that blog, if not, uh, are you open to having people contact you on Facebook? And it's okay to say no to that, by the way. Oh, no, I'm absolutely okay. Um, I do have a blog that I've started. Um, it's bellasvinadesign.com, and that's B as in boy, E-L-L-U-S, B as in Victor, E-N-I-A-Design.com. Okay. And you can Excellent. email me as well on that website. All right. Excellent. Abigail, I know you have a blog because I follow it. So <laughs> you want to give us your uh, your uh, blog URL, and if you want people to contact you from Facebook, then give that as well. Sure. Please contact me. Um, the blog is called Herding Chickens and Other Adventures in Foster and Adoptive Care. Um, it's H-E-A-R-D-I-N-G. Um, chickens.wordpress.com and you can find me on Twitter at Chicken Herding um, <laughs> and please feel free to contact me. Jan, how about you? Yes, absolutely. Um, they can find me on Facebook um, Jan Barkin, B-A-R-K-E-N Egozi, E-G-O-Z-I Alright, and Shelley, last but certainly not least, how about you? Um, I do uh, have a blog um, to follow the crazy adoptions. Um, my <laughs> uh, the URL it's a, a WordPress. It's uh, beansprouted.wordpress.com, uh, and anyone can contact me through that or um, find me on Facebook, Shelley uh, with an E Y uh, McMullen. Thank you all for joining us today. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Now is the peak of season for dayboat scallops, and we're serving them fresh at Bonefish Grill. Caught daily off the coast of New England and delivered to our restaurants, these gems of the sea are the perfect way to welcome in summer. They're wood-grilled until golden over an oak fire, then placed on a bed of creamy risotto and topped with crispy bacon and our homemade lemon butter sauce. Total indulgence. Our fresh dayboat scallops are only here for a short time. So come into Bonefish Grill today before they're gone. Panera Bread is now delivering in Raleigh. That means broccoli cheddar soup, roasted turkey and avocado BLT, and all your other favorites are delivered right to your office, or door, or porch, or backyard, or front yard, or dorm, or wherever, for lunch, dinner, and everywhere in between. Order today at PaneraBread.com or download the app. Participating locations only. Panera, food as it should be. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send him my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. 
What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.